What happens when those friends maybe don't become so friendly? You move from friendshoring to foe-shoring, and what does that mean? What kinds of implications does that have? The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host, Rem Korteweg. Today, we have a very special podcast for you as we're recording this live from the beating heart of global trade. Now, where else could we be then in Geneva at the WTO? And this week, the WTO Public Forum is taking place, and it's absolutely fantastic to be here to follow the discussions, to meet friends, and to take the pulse on the state of trade multilateralism. And that's precisely what we're going to talk about today. The theme of the WTO public forum is it's time for action. Now, a lot of the focus of this week's discussions are about how trade can deliver on our collective ambitions to tackle climate change and promote sustainability. And this offers some explanation, I think, for the sense of urgency that the theme is trying to convey. But something else is happening as well which may also partially explain this call to action. As the WTO's Global Trade Report 2023 mentions, there is a growing concern about regionalization or even fragmentation in the trade landscape. Countries are increasingly looking at trade through a security lens. Subsidies pose a challenge to multilateral rulemaking, and protectionist tendencies are strong. And geopolitical competition is influencing global trade dynamics like never before. And these centrifugal forces are also felt here at the WTO. Besides, an increasing amount of trade simply takes place in a regional context. It always has. Think of USMCA and the Americas or the European Union and its neighborhood or East Asia. In fact, if you look at East Asia, you could argue that this is most clearly panning out there as the mega CPTPP and the even more mega RCEP trade initiatives really aim to boost intra-regional trade. So where does this leave the WTO? And what role can the WTO play to reduce the risks of trade fragmentation? And we're doing this with what I believe is the cream of the crop of WTO experts. So who have joined me? Firstly, because we are in her house, sort of, I'm joined by Deputy Director General Angela Ellert. Angela has held this position since June 2021. Before that, she had a background working at Capitol Hill, though she, of course, is not a U.S. official. Secondly, Jennifer Hillman. Jennifer really needs no introduction, but for the sake of it, she is Professor of Practice at Georgetown Law. She's a friend of the AIG Global Trade Series and co-director of the Center on Inclusive Trade and Development. She also served as one of the seven members of the WTO's appellate body. And finally, Stormy Annika Mildner. Stormy is the executive director of Aspen Institute Germany, and she has been closely involved with Germany's G20 presidency, is a fantastic trade expert, and was the head of the External Economic Policy Department at the Federation of German Industries, the BDI. 
Now, thank you all three for joining me here, and thank you so much to Angela for hosting us at the WTO. Now, as I said, there appears to be a trend towards growing regionalization of trade. This is a result of changing patterns of production, uh, of increasing regulatory competition, but also of geopolitical tensions. Governments are flirting with measures to step back from globalization and focus more on trade closer to home or trading more simply with friends. Now, before we tackle that issue, I'd like to ask Angela, we're here at the WTO. What do you make of the, the public forum so far? Well, thank you very much for my friends here, for being here together with me here in Geneva for the public forum. I wish everyone listening could be here in Geneva. It, we have thousands, a cast of thousands here at the WTO over about 130 programs that we are putting on through the public forum. There's really a lot of energy and excitement about a call to action, which is our theme for the public forum. And that topic covers so many different areas. It covers sustainability in many different ways. It covers what is the future of trade in terms of uh, fragmentation and some of the pulls and pushes that we're seeing in the system. And as part of the public forum, the WTO issued a key report yesterday looking at some of these trends. So I look forward to discussing all of these issues with you. But in the meantime, it's a beautiful day here in Geneva. Thanks for that. Gordon Brown, the former British Prime Minister, gave a keynote address at the WTO public forum. And he talked about the risk of a one world, two systems trade environment, where the trade landscape basically bifurcates along geopolitical lines. And as I mentioned, and I think, Angela, that's the report you're referring to, the WTO's World Trade Report said that we are seeing the first indications that trade is indeed intensifying between geopolitical friends at the expense of trading, if you will, with geopolitical foes. And so the first signs of, of fragmentation are here. Jennifer, why are countries doing this? I mean, what's really driving that centrifugal pressure on the global trade system? Well, I think you touched on it, Rem. And again, I would say it's great to be here in Geneva and to feel all of this excitement and to be with friends uh, for this podcast. But when I step back and look at it, I think, I mean, some of it is just generally the economics around it. All of the things that drove us to go completely global, looking for less expensive labor, the increasing use of technology, the increasing use of everything from 3D printing on down. So a lot of what caused everyone to go to far-flung global supply chains, those economic factors have now pushed back in the direction of doing a lot more trade more locally. You add on top of it the concerns over climate change and just the sheer amount of greenhouse gases that get emitted in transporting lots of goods a long way. And you are seeing lots of economic reasons why trade is becoming more local or more regional. But you're right. You add on top of that. To me, it's the major rivalry between the United States and China that is to some degree driving those into various camps. And you add on top of that what's happened in Asia with 
the creation of the regional cooperative economic partnership that really puts together China, Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, all of the ASEAN countries, where there then is a huge push to do all of that trade within that system. The rules of origin say if you meet those rules of origin, all of those goods then trade regionally. So there is this huge push to go into these regional blocks, and you add on top of that, one of the other things that's clearly happened in recent years is a bit of an erasing the line that we used to see between what is economic security and trading for economic reasons and national security. And you are increasingly seeing every country look at its trading regime in part through the lens of national security or its own essential security interests, which has then raised the specter of export controls on goods that feed into national security concerns and other things where countries want to be very careful about what they trade and who they trade with if you're now going to look from a national security lens. Stormy, is this a bad thing or is this simply... You know, a feature of, of the new reality. Yeah. First, I also want to say it's wonderful to be here <laughs> at the public forum. And I wish that everybody could be here, especially those who have been becoming more and more critical of the WTO and saying that it doesn't deliver anymore. I think spending a couple of days here and feeling the energy and also reading the last report um, of what happened actually in 2022 would show a lot of critics that the WTO is nowhere near ineffective and inefficient, but that it really does deliver. And I'm sure we're going to come back to this la later on. Um, and um, seeing so many stakeholders here from the business community, from the civil society sector, it's really heartening that there is a lot of interest in the WTO. And now with regard to fragmentation, um, decoupling, de-risking, friendshoring, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? First of all, I would say trade in itself is a really, really good thing. Um, it is good for um, economic growth. It is good for poverty reduction. It is good for income. And it has delivered a lot with regard to welfare in many countries around the world. Um, that is a definite trade is good. However, over-dependence on individual countries, on specific sectors, can also lead to pretty big risks. And um, I come from Germany, um, and we have felt that over the last couple of years dramatically with regard to our energy sector. After Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, we felt what it means to be over-dependent on individual countries, on specific sectors. We are also extremely dependent with regard to special sectors um, on China, special strategic sectors. Um, and we have also seen during the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, that not all of our global supply chains um, and production networks really um, are well structured and that maybe we uh, put too much of an emphasis on efficiencies, getting rid of redundancies, which are actually necessary. So I would say Fragmentation driven by geopolitics and the idea of friendshoring and decoupling is not the way to go. But um, reducing our dependencies, mm -hmm. de-risking and also building in redundancies, thinking a little bit about stockpiling um, and thinking about where you produce what and how much you want to be dependent on individual countries in certain sectors, that is actually the right thing to do. And that is not cheap. That also creates costs, but the risks are also really costly, as we had seen in our case. I mean, that is also very costly. 
Uh, and it, it puts a lot of burden on individual member states to assess where these unwanted dependencies are. But looking at it from the, the multilateral level, what are what are steps that we can take in an, in a WTO context? And perhaps Angela, you you have some some tips and tricks to share. Tips and tricks. Well, I'll try my best. Now, I think the key here is resilience. Mm. This is what we're trying to achieve. Redundancies in some situations are very necessary. We see this particularly as climate change is having its impact with severe weather, national emergencies of all kinds, uh, of course, a war, a food crisis. There is a need for more resilience and for dependence on not just yourself, not just your friends. You mentioned Gordon Brown's brilliant speech yesterday at the WTO. He talked about this issue, as you note, the concern of focusing only on yourself or focusing only on your friends. And he coined a new term. He said, what happens when those friends maybe don't become so friendly? You move from friendshoring to foe-shoring. And what does that mean? How does What kinds of implications does that have? And we're seeing it, as you mentioned, we're seeing it in the data. We're seeing the trend that's that's starting to happen at the beginning stages and looking at it different ways. If you look at two big blocks, we're starting to see those signs. And the consequences are high. The consequences are high economically, where if we were to divide into two blocks, the cost, the global GDP effect would be 5%. And for developing countries, it would be in the double digits. The lost opportunity cost for not pursuing market liberalization instead is almost 9%, and again, much higher for developing countries. And the irony here is that re-globalization, as we call it here, offers a better path than fragmentation for peace, for people, for the planet. As you mentioned, Stormy, looking at the impact of trade on poverty alleviation is significant. It's a question of economic security, but it's a broader question too. So, you know, the data really, like, for example, with respect to sustainability, which is so much of of a focus of the public forum here, the data from our report that came out yesterday, that 40% of the dramatic cost decline for solar panels is due to supply chains and having broad supply chains that are available so that countries that perhaps don't produce these products but have a huge demand for these products can buy them more cheaply. So it all starts to come together. Our role in the WTO is to bring this data to members, to bring it to the public both in terms of the business community, but civil society as well, because everyone is an important player, to show what the consequences are of particular actions, even if they are not specific action, but inaction or or particular paths that countries may fall into, just to understand what the consequences are and the importance of looking at this issue, not just from the developed world, but how it affects developing members who constantly make the very important point here that they're afraid of being left out as these two big blocks come together. If it's a U.S.-China type of uh, interplay, what happens to them? And And what are the consequences for the planet? That's fascinating. And it's also, I think, 
I mean, the, the point you raised that the reason we have cheaper solar panels is because of the supply chains that allow these products to be developed and produced more, more cheaply. I think it underlines the notion that sometimes is misperceived in political contexts across, uh, say, the developed world, that reliance on supply chains isn't necessarily a risk, but it should actually be seen as an opportunity to be able to get the stuff we, we want. At the same time, I guess from the WTO's perspective, yes, making this data available is very important, but what can be done in the area of rulemaking? And, and I'd like to bring Jennifer in here. Is there room for new rules to manage this global trade environment that's at risk of being more fragmented? I'm thinking particularly about the issue of subsidies, which play into this very concretely. I mean, there are a lot of subsidies which are effectively also designed to boost domestic production rather than rely on imports. So what, what's, what's your take on this? I mean, I think a very good point, and, and I would certainly underscore the, the tenor of your question, which is if everybody is going regional or something, what's left for the WTO? Um, and I would start just by underscoring the incredibly important point that Angela is making of, you know, nowhere else can you get all of the data. Nowhere else can you find everyone in the world's tariff schedules, everyone in the world's services schedules, everyone in the world's SPS measures, everyone in the world's technical barriers to trade, there's no way other countries could could duplicate that mm -hmm. without an enormous expense. And so the work that the WTO does just on the transparency side alone is really important and worth mentioning. The other area where it is going to take a global response is what to do about subsidies, because subsidies are not going to stay just regional. I mean, whatever has been produced on the back of a subsidy is going to be traded globally. So it is important that we think about subsidy disciplines as the province of the WTO. And the good and the bad is, yes, we already have subsidy disciplines. Again, at great pains, we ended up, as a result of the Uruguay round, with the agreement on subsidies and countervailing measures, which has some basic rules in it that a certain category of subsidies are considered prohibited. You are, members are not to grant or maintain them. And we saw a lot of life breathed into that most recently in the fisheries agreement, where, again, this what had been a category that existed of only local content requirements and export subsidies were what was prohibited. We've now added to that this new category of a series of subsidies that are resulting in overfishing, um, illegal and unregulated fishing being subsidized. So again, we've now expanded this notion of what could be prohibited. And that gives a lot of hope and room, for example, in the climate change space about whether we could yet add further to those things that are affirmatively causing climate change, affirmatively contributing fossil fuel production subsidy and others. Could we expand that definition of what is a prohibited subsidy? And on the flip side, there was, in the olden days, if you will, provisions for what subsidies should be considered not actionable, mm -hmm. meaning you can't challenge them. They're in this quasi-area where they're, they might have some trade-distorting effects, but on the other hand, they have good effects. And I think there's been a lot of work being done now of could we expand, bring back that notion that there are subsidies that are affirmatively contributing to sustainable development, that are affirmatively contributing to climate change. They they may have some trade distorting effects, but we're going to say on balance, mm -hmm. if the subsidy is creating more good, if you will, than it is creating trade distortions, could we create this notion 
Yes, you notify it to the WTO. You tell the whole world what you're doing and why you're doing it. And we think about creating a new category where we would all agree we won't challenge those subsidies. Is that something we see at the WTO these today? I mean, is that a, a, a live conversation? Because it seems like a pretty reasonable suggestion from Jennifer. I think the, the complicating factor in the WTO is kind of the threshold question, what is the WTO? Yeah. And we're 164 members operating on the basis of consensus. That means everyone has to agree, or at least agree not to disagree. So as members are wrestling with these issues, they have to do so in this kind of environment. There is definitely a conversation, I think, among some members about looking at subsidies the way that Jennifer is describing. We're already seeing signs she very rightly pointed to our great achievement of our members with the fisheries subsidies agreement last year, which completely changes how we look at subsidies so that it's no longer a trade effect, but it is a sustainability effect that defines whether a particular subsidy is prohibited or, or not. And we're continuing that work now with the second wave of negotiations. But what's so interesting about the fish negotiations and how it leads to potentially broader discussions with respect to subsidies, perhaps along the lines of what Jennifer is describing, is that how readily members have accepted this mm -hmm. Sea change, bad pun, but you know how broadly they they have accepted this means of negotiation and and how to determine what is what is prohibited and what is not. It's a very complicated question because how do you determine the environmental value of a particular subsidy? Who measures that? In the trade world, we know how to measure that in terms of effects. On the environmental side, it's a little bit more difficult. So members would have to come up with ways of analyzing this to determine what the trade-offs should be. But in the meantime, there's tons that we can be doing here at the WTO just to make trade in environmentally sustainable products and services and technology much easier to reduce those barriers that we can do quickly if there's a political will. So there's a, a lot that can be done at various stages in the process. It's all very much part of our reform effort here at the WTO as well. And this is being driven by so many different members at all levels of economic development, including those developing members who are most vulnerable to climate change. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk about the reform efforts in a, in a, in a, in a second. Um, Stormy, I want to bring you in as well. And I also want to ask you from a European or a German perspective on the issue of subsidies. And if I look at the European debate these days, it's very much about being caught between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, you have to deal with China with its subsidies. And on the other hand, with the United States with its subsidies. And you have the Europeans saying, well... If you can't beat them, join them, right? And we're going to think about industrial policy. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well, how this, how this resonates 
in a in a European context. Oh, we do also have our subsidies, <laughs> not just in, in China and the US. Um, I mean, we have the Green Deal and a lot of money is uh, poured out um, into sustainability projects and investment um, as, is, as is, it is in the United States. And it's also necessary to invest um, because we will not be able to deal with climate change without the technology. Mm -hmm. And so there needs to be massive investment in it, in infrastructure, in technologies, um, in agriculture as well, um, lots of different areas. Um, and, um, and that's why I find um, what both of you said so very important, that it is a double-edged sword. Um, we need the investment, definitely, but at the same time, it can also lead to trade distortions. Um, it can also lead to a subsidies race between countries. It can also lead to um, a big transfer of money from the government uh, to the business sector. And It also can build up overcapacities. Um, just looking at China, for example, it's building up massive overcapacities for batteries for electric vehicles. And that, I think, underlines why it is also so or will be so difficult to say when a subsidy is really a good subsidy um, and should be allowed and it shouldn't be allowed. Um, because in a sense... We do need also investment in um, the development of new battery technologies, definitely. But when is the point where that is becoming a problem because it leads to overcapacities? And another thing I wanted to touch upon is those countries can do the investment who have the money. So these are the bigger ones, the developed countries to a lesser degree, the emerging economies, but certainly not the poor developing countries. And, and I'm not saying that there is not a, um, a trickle-down effect and that other countries are going to benefit from U.S. investment or subsidies and from uh, EU uh, investment and subsidies. But we are building or we are risking at least building in new barriers. And we are risking also building in new advantages where it's really hard. It's a first mover advantage kind of, right? And for other countries then to get into the market will be harder and harder. So I think we do need to think about the development uh, dimension as well when we talk about subsidies. And coming back to the definition again, I was a huge fan of the negotiations for the environmental goods, the plurilateral ETA negotiations. And I thought that it was such a shame that that is um, off the table because the benefits would be so great getting rid of tariffs on environmental goods. But it failed because of the definition, because countries could not agree. What an, I mean, there were lots of different reasons why it failed, also political ones. But countries could not agree what is an environmental good. And um, I'm a little afraid that we are going to run into the same debates with regard to subsidies for manufactured goods, for industrial goods. When is it an environmentally sound, good subsidy and when it's not. And I'm also looking at negotiations or discussions between the United States um, and, and the, uh, the EU and the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council. They also talk about subsidies um, and uh, they can also not agree what is um, <laughs> a good and what is not a good subsidy. So I'm a little bit pessimistic on that front. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Just listening to you speak, it, it, I realize that there's actually a second type of fragmentation that's occurring. We focus a lot, or maybe I focus a lot, on the on the geopolitically inspired fragmentation. But there's that fragmentation between those that have the ability to provide subsidies and those that don't. And that puts particular countries at disadvantages. And that raises this topic of how do you bridge that gap to also bring in the emerging and the developing 
economies into this conversation? And and how do you convince countries and blocs like the US, China, and the EU to to avoid fragmentation in in critical sectors? Because that also puts emerging economies at a real disadvantage. And I guess we all, as outsiders, kind of look to the WTO to fix that, noting that, you know, of course, Angela, you're right, the WTO is only a combination of the collective will of 160 plus members. So what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Well, it's the culmination here, the WTO, the culmination of the will of 164, but it's everyone. It's everyone at the table. So that's already starting from a good place, that this is not the, the WTO of old or the GATT of old when it was just some members here. But now everyone is represented and they represent themselves very effectively, either as individual members or through regional groups. So voices from every level of economic development, every size, every comparative advantage is at the table here in one way or another. So you hope that through that type of process, it takes a while to be sure, but you hope that all the interests do get represented. I think that one of the key issues here, you know, you asked the question, how, how do you convince the developed world, the, the US, the EU, China, to involve developing members? Well, first of all, the developing members will insist on this, and rightly yeah. so. And when you're talking about a crisis of the global commons like climate change, it goes beyond the, the trade effects, the simple trade effects. And everyone has to participate in the solution in order for there to be a solution, just by definition. So what that means is that everyone has to listen mm -hmm. to everyone else. But it's also good trade policy for the developed world to integrate the developing world into its own domestic solutions. So what I found very interesting was, for example, the U.S. President Biden going to Vietnam yeah. right after the G20. I thought that was quite interesting to talk about supply chain issues. And the proof, I think, that the WTO brings to the table is to make clear that from a trade perspective, from a poverty reduction perspective, from a sustainability perspective, you do have to, this gets back to the question of supply chains, you, you do have to work together. Yeah. And, and on the supply chain issue, because I think it's so central to this discussion, we see a lot of initiatives take place in the context of G7 or, or bilaterally. Where does that conversation about building secure and resilient supply chains stand in, in, in the WTO? In the sense that, from my point of view, there is agreement that, say, a pandemic hits and everyone is, is impacted in the same way. But it becomes a very different discussion when access to particular materials also gets viewed through a geopolitical or a security lens which actually, I guess, exacerbates this risk of fragmentation or at least of de-risking or decoupling. What role can the WTO play to build a global system where everyone is able to access these supply chains of, for instance, critical technologies or critical materials? I don't know, Jennifer, maybe you have thoughts on this. 
Well, to me, there's there's basically two really key roles that the WTO plays, and I think you see it increasingly played. And, you know, the first starts with transparency and trying to figure out how to map out where the choke points are in various supply chains so that it's very transparently clear where there is not enough resilience, where there's not enough redundancy, where there is too much reliance on a given country, a given supplier. So that again, everyone is well aware that that's where the supply chains are flowing through. So again, very much a transparency role. And I think you see an increased level of that at the WTO, which is enormously helpful. I mean, you look at what the United States is doing, for example, in this Indo-Pacific economic framework. The number one pillar that is going to get completed in the nearest term is this idea of providing very transparent maps Mm. of supply chains for all critical goods so that you really do have a sense of where those supply chains flow, where the choke points are. The second thing, though, that the WTO really does is the rules and the basic rules of you cannot discriminate on the basis of nationality. You cannot discriminate in favor of domestic production. So, yes, you have all these geopolitical things that are there, but the fundamental rule is a most favored nation. You treat all goods and services from all the countries that are subject to those rules the same. And the second are the rules on you're not supposed to engage in export bans. I mean, so there are those key rules that are forming the bedrock of the WTO that are still there and in place and are still should be kind of the guideposts, touchposts over whether what countries are engaging in is consistent with what they've agreed to do as as a member of the WTO. We've talked a lot about goods. I think they rightly deserve a lot of attention, but there's also the element of services, which um, sometimes gets glanced over in this this discussion. How do we involve the WTO more to develop rules on services? Because in services, particularly also in digital services, for instance, you really also see this growing regionalization. Well, services is is an area where the WTO is very involved. We have plurilateral initiatives that are underway. There's already an agreement on domestic services regulation, which includes for the first time in our rulebook a gender provision. We also have a recently concluded agreement by 110 of our 164 members relating to investment uh, facilitation for development, which is uh, has many developing members as parties to this agreement because they realize how important it is to facilitate in investment as a development tool. Of course, there's e-commerce, and we have a, uh, a JSI that's underway, underway What's there, What's a JSI? Too. I'm sorry. It's an initiative. Sorry for the WTO <laughs> lingo, but it is one of the plurilateral initiatives that is in our founding documents, these types of plurilateral initiatives are are contemplated. That is some of the work that we're doing, but we're also doing other work too. Jennifer very appropriately mentioned transparency. And so the information that as part of the GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, that is kind of the building block that members have been using, that has certain obligations that members uh, have to meet. But that's an old agreement. And 
the world has certainly changed, and it's changed in terms of how important services are in the economy, but also how important digital services are in the economy all over the world, and how important they are as a tool of development that helps developing members leapfrog mm -hmm. over older technologies and reach a particular level of development. One interesting fact in our report that um, we issued yesterday the WTO economists found that African women would gain disproportionately from trade cost reductions in digitally delivered services, given that three out of four African firms trading exclusively through e-commerce are female managed and run. So that, to me, really leverages a mm -hmm. whole bunch of points as to the importance of services globally the importance of services as a sustainability, a matter of sustainability and facilitating sustainable trade as a means of poverty alleviation and as a means to empower women and create more inclusivity. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Did you want to add to that? Yeah, Sorry, I would, yeah. I would, yeah, I would uh, love to. Um, uh, thank you so much um, for mentioning the issue of transparency and how important it is to, to map the choke points um, in global value chains and regional value chains. If I may have a wish, uh, wish for transparency and mapping, I would love to see a map of all those new trade agreements and deals which are currently emerging, which are not notified at the WTO. Yes which are not free trade agreements, which do have to be notified, or customs unions, which do have to be notified, um, but all those more transactional, semi-trade, technology, sector-specific agreements, which will have a huge impact on trade, do not have to be notified, but it would be lovely to see where they are, what they are, what they, where content is, and um, to evaluate what their effects on, on mm. trade will be and on multilateral versus regional trade on fragmentation. The second thing which I wanted to bring into the discussion is that um, tariffs is obviously one thing, um, but non-tariff barriers is another for goods, but also for services. And in those more transactional kind of deals, which are currently negotiated, it is a lot about non-tariff barriers areas in terms of technical standards for goods and for services and thinking about all those new technologies which are currently evolving, um, artificial intelligence, hydro energy, I mean, you name it. Um, countries are developing their own technical standards or trying to do so in, t in international standard setting organizations. And I would love to see a, a greater connection, I think, between those standard setting bodies and the WTO and the members of the WTO talking about what that mm -hmm. is going to, what the effect is going to be um, on, on trade. And last point I wanted to raise, I think that the uh, joint initiatives, the plurilateral joint initiatives are really a good way to go to find consensus among a limited first mover country, so to say, within the context of the WTO to explore new issue areas where, where the whole full body of WTO members doesn't want to go yet, but um, a certain number of countries wants to go. And they just need to be designed in a way that they can be multilateralized at a later stage. So it's really important to think about the development dimension of a joint initiative and, and how it is designed. But I think it's a really good way um, to, to approach uh, those newer issues in the WTO. Yeah. That's an excellent sort of overview of things that um, that the WTO can definitely do. It leads me to the point 
that was already raised by Angela, which is the reform, the reform agenda of the WTO. And I'd be really curious to hear where that reform agenda stands. And perhaps I'd be also be very curious what we can say about that third pillar of the WTO. We talked a lot about transparency. We talked a bit about rulemaking. But where does this leave ultimately dispute settlement and the appellate body, which seems to be a very important pillar if we really want to re-energize sort of trade multilateralism. So, Angela, where, where are we on, uh, on WTO reform? Well, reform is a many-faceted yeah. <laughs> um, feature here at the WTO. There, there is a tremendous amount of interest by members, a lot of energy, many of them putting forward proposals to be considered by the general membership, either in the context of the General Council, which is our largest Geneva-based body, other than, of course, our ministerial conferences, but also in our very active committees where a lot of the work on reform can be done. And, and I would also say there's kind of a sense among members that we should be reforming by doing. In other words, not waiting for some grand bargain at the end of the day on reform for everything, but perhaps is there an early harvest of issues related to our deliberative function, for example, or transparency or more inclusiveness. The ways of conducting business here at the WTO, can that be more transparent? So things like that, in addition to the subject matter type issues, which obviously will take a little bit longer. I think many members are looking to MC13 and the presence of the ministers as an opportunity to figure out what those steps are. So that will be a very important marker for us. For us at the WTO, the ministerial conferences are very important, but the work goes on the very next day. So it is an opportunity to, to figure out what does come next. With respect to dispute settlement, little bit of a different animal because there the ministers have already spoken at MC12 at our ministerial conference last June or the June before last in which they said they stated their goal of having a fully functioning dispute resolution mechanism accessible to all mm -hmm. by 2024. So that's the mandate that the ministers have given and the members are working very hard to try to achieve that working through an informal process, which brings everyone to the table, an incredibly intense schedule of meetings, plenary meetings, as well as small group meetings in which various configurations of members meet, but others can listen in, an opportunity for large and small to be able to participate. The facilitator has reported that 80% of the issues are ready for drafting. 10% of them are getting close, he said, and the other 10% are quite difficult, and you can imagine what those are. But trying to, to find a, a way forward, it seems that there is a will among members to do this, both with respect to, let's say, the concerns that the U.S. has been raising traditionally about the appellate body, but also concerns raised by other members too, including developing members, that they really don't have access, in their view, to dispute settlement. It doesn't meet their needs. Either it's too expensive or the remedy that they may receive once they win is not something that really can help them. So that becomes quite complicated. But I think the ultimate need for dispute settlement 
as being the teeth, the innovation of the WTO is that we do have a mechanism. And right now, with the mechanism not fully functioning, but still on the books, means that there is no finality. At the same time, dispute settlement does continue. And we see members who use alternative means to resolve disputes after the panel stage, even though there's no functioning appellate body. Or we see members resolving cases. The U.S. and India just resolved a whole series of cases. Australia and China just resolved the Barley case after you know a panel report. So dispute settlement still is, is working and it's helping members reach agreement mm-hmm. or to reach outcomes to achieve compliance. But ultimately, we need something that is not incomplete, whatever that may look like. I also want to give Jennifer an opportunity to share her two cents because I know that you've been thinking a lot about about WTO reform at the same time. I'm also aware that we're actually really approaching time. I mean, this conversation has gone so quickly. Well, I I guess I'll just only underscore that I do think it is really important. I was very pleased to see this commitment. And I think the the dispute, having a fully functioning dispute settlement mechanism available to all is critical. And I think you start to see the absence of it. I mean, when you saw, for example, this Inflation Reduction Act pass in the United States that had this electric vehicle local content requirements, in the past, you would have always had people raising the issue of, but wait a minute, what about our WTO obligations? Are we sure this is consistent? You don't see that as much anymore. There isn't as much of a sense of, I need to be worried about making sure I'm compliant. And that over the long haul has a negative effect, both about whether countries want to enter into new agreements. If the rules are not going to be enforced, what's the point? And secondly, how seriously they take their already existing obligations. So to me, it's essential. I don't really have anything to add to the Mm. process. I know that the United States has been one of the countries that has put forward a significant number of proposals. I know from my discussions with those in the United States that they are very interested in getting reactions or responses or counterproposals or other ideas on the table, that there is a lot of engagement in the process. Again, none of those proposals are public, so I, I, I don't have anything to say about the details of them other than to say that I think the United States is very genuinely engaging in this process and has joined in seriously this commitment of the Minister declaration to have a fully functioning system by 2024. And you also hear it from the business community. I mean, I mean, those rules are very, very important and the enforcement of the rules are very important. And if you talk to companies in my home country, for example, they say we do need a dispute settlement procedure because it is so important also for the predictability and the certainty of international trade. And they also say that those trade dispute settlement mechanisms and free trade agreements, they are great, but they're not the same as the WTO. And we do not have free trade agreements uh, with those countries where it really also matters to have a dispute settlement procedure. So it's it's really, really essential. And those new deals um, like the TTC or some other agreements, they don't even foresee any kind of dispute settlement procedure. So it's really also from the business point of view, from from the business sector, it's really important that there is a multilateral dispute settlement process. 
It's been absolutely fantastic talking to all three of you. What it leaves me with is that, yes, there is more work to be done. There are things that I think the, the outside expects the WTO to deliver with obviously the caveat that it's 164 members that make that possible or not. But at the same time, there is a real case for what the WTO calls re-globalization. If we want to push back against trade fragmentation, if you want to make your economy more resilient, actually trade and more trade is probably the way to go. It's about diversification. It's about building these trade links and these supply chains that allow you to get access to particular goods and, and or services. And I think it's, it, we've shared a number of, or you've shared a number of very powerful examples of where reglobalization and the WTO can play an important role. So with that, I hope that we've also contributed a little bit to that theme of the WTO Public Forum that now is the time for action. With that, unfortunately, it is all the time we have today. It's such a shame because it's great to do this in person. Thank you very much to Angela Ellard, Jennifer Hillman, and Stormy Annika Mildner. Please check out our other conversations for the AIG Global Trade Series at www.aig.com gts or get them on your podcast app. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute Germany, SEBRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.